0: The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith, that is gracebible.faith. So I've had the unique privilege of having been invested into by really a variety of pastors and teachers over the years, but one of them I don't often mention, I have mentioned him before, but not often, probably not often enough but his influence has been profound. Uh, My academic advisor and the chair of the pastoral ministries department when I was at Columbia Bible College, Dr. Richard Belcher. He was a man who loved training pastors. That was really his great passion. He had served in pastoral ministry and continued to uh, travel and to preach uh, all over uh, the the greater Columbia area and beyond, and he would often uh, lead mission teams and whatnot. But again, he, he loved training pastors and, and Bible teachers and missionaries and investing in those who would continue on and, and be serving Christ's church in those regards. But he also stretched himself to reach others with the precious truth of God's word by way of writing stories. And this really really surprising because whatever you think of me in terms of like, oh, is he, Denise actually had a, a terrible proposal this morning. There was a, a, a tie struggle in terms of... Um, which one to wear and what to do. And she's like, "Could maybe go without a tie today. He's like, no, that's, that's not going to happen. And Dr. Belcher is that and more and more and more and more. Um, he, he was the one that uh, he would tell us he's, uh, when cold weather comes, he's like, man, you got to protect that throat because you got to be able to preach. You don't want that throat. And so you would learn things like that. And so for him to write stories, novels, was surprising to me. I knew the man fairly well. And so he wrote a series of small novels in which the protagonist was Ira Pointer, as in I are a pointer. And yeah, it surprised me too. But nevertheless, it was very skillful, very gentle, very really just an easy engagement by way of novels. And as you walked with Ira Pointer, as he wrestled through a variety of theological and doctrinal experiences within the church, and as Ira worked through these matters, you worked through these matters, and you, the reader, learned from his experience. And so it's a really skillful but simple way to engage the, the broader, uh, larger church and to help people bridge things that can be challenging. It can be hard. Maybe they're not going to sit in hours and hours of theological lectures, but you could walk with Ira and you could learn with them. So this was a, a teaching-by-example model. He, he knew teaching-by-model with, the, with the, the, the more formal and professional context, but it was also another teaching-by-model experience, albeit through the means of a fictional character. And from what I've heard, these books have been a very effective medium uh, to many people, and to include our very own Anton, from when I'm not mistaken. He's, he's a fan of the, the Journey in Grace series. Um, and so I'm grateful for that. And examples are magnificent helps, especially those that are are true to life. And we've noted, and as we've noted all throughout Philippians, especially when we're introducing the book, it has a strong emphasis on examples. So you're going to have Paul, you're going to have Epaphroditus, you're going to have Timothy, and you're going to have others that along the way have provided very clear, very strong examples. That's the nature of the letter, even, as it's one that really leans on examples, So there's a strong emphasis on examples, but chief among them being the example of Christ. He's not just teaching about Christ. He's not just talking about Christ. He also says, look at the example of Christ. Not just a historical narrative, but let me draw explicitly in this uh, didactic context the, the example of Christ. And so it's most natural that in the passage that constitutes the heart of the letter, this is my deduction, but I really think it's true for the letter, the heart of the letter is that the example that's provided is no one less than Christ himself. Now, he's going to go on to provide other examples in chapter 2, but it's going to be a step down, or immediately a step down. And so we have the preeminent example in the heart of the letter is no one less than Christ himself. Not a fictional character, not even a faithful believer, not even an apostle, but again, Christ himself. And what lies at the heart of this book? Why would I say this is the heart of the letter, that if you, get the, if you take this out, you lose Philippians? Well, I would argue that because at the heart of this book is one that gives the primary attention to matters of joy, unity, and thinking. Remember, those are our, our major themes for the book, and they've woven themselves most intimately here. And they've jo- uh, so joy, unity, and thinking, they've, and they've intimately woven together here in commands to secure a humble, others-oriented disposition of thought that produces unity and therefore joy. And with this in view, we pick back up with the second of the passages, two commands, a command to think like Christ. And with this, an unpacking of just what this means. It's not just a command, think like Christ and then let your minds drift and wonder and put things together. But what does that look like? What does that mean? And so we're going to give our attention back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. So follow with me as we pick up in the middle of three sections in the larger section of 2, 1 through 11. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, as we've stated, verse 5 was the second of the passage's two commands. The second of two commands that have a shared emphasis or aim. Paul wants us to think a certain way. That's his aim within these commands, really within the larger book as a whole, but more precisely, with these two commands, Paul wants us to think a certain way. He wants us to think with a humble Others-oriented disposition, one that most naturally produces unity within Christ's church. And he could have just stated that and moved on. And, and sometimes there's a value to being very, very concise, and maybe there's an advantage to having the, uh, the, the weight of other things to bear on it, and you can be more concise in that regard because you know that they're going to track with you. But Paul chose not to do that. What did he do? He could have just said, again, think with this way, think in a way that produces unity, think alike— Move on. But he didn't. He pressed us here, didn't he? He pressed us, and he advanced the matter of, of think the same way in the Lord to now, the second command, think like Christ. A matter that he also could have just left open-ended, knowing that in doing such, our minds would likely be filled with a range of reflections on the Gospels, uh, drawing on how did Christ think, how can I think in a like manner, and just kind of left it open-ended. So he could have left it open-ended with think, with the unity of mind in the Lord, he pressed it with think like Christ. And then he could have left that alone, but then he pressed it a little bit more, pressed us more here. And he effectively said, it's time to do some heavier lifting for a moment. Yes, you, you, you could let your mind drift and think about the Gospels. That's good. That's good. And you need to, and it's really going to contribute. It's going to help what we're doing today. But he wants to press us a little bit more. He wants to to press us to some heavy lifting for a moment. We don't always do that, it's not always necessary. For a long time, earlier in this section, it was easy things, easy to understand, hard to apply. These are harder to understand, and really hard to apply. But we'll get there. So we have some, a little bit of a strain, a little bit of a struggle, a little bit of wrestling with the text, and to some degree even wrestling with one another in, in a gracious manner, because we're trying to help each other see a, a bit more clearly, to, to peek at the place where Revelation fades into mystery. And that's a really difficult transition point to be at because we're going we're gonna to struggle with where does revelation fade into mystery and, and how much is revelation, how much is mystery, and how do we understand what is revealed? It's a difficult thing to wrestle with as individuals. And then you have a bunch of individuals coming together with the like text trying to come to a similar conclusion, and it's hard. It's very hard. And sometimes we're going to have some measuring, various measures of agreement, as it were, along the way. So walk with me once more. As we now come to the precipice of that place where what can be known, again, will fade into what is left for God's good pleasure alone. There's going to be things you're just going to have to say, you know what? That's for God to know. And he may, he may reveal it in the eternal state. Maybe that'll be part of our experience. Maybe you won't. and That's okay. You know, uh, even today, uh, while well, researching Bulgaria and some other things, I think there's some rights to the moon and how we're gonna, everybody's going to play nice as we explore the moon. And they signed off on it and whatnot. There are moons that we'll never, ever see. There are moons that we'll never know about, and that's okay. God made them, and he's happy to make them. There's some things that are just for him. And so we're going to find there's an impossible gap, though, that we're going to try to bridge, but we can't. We're going to bridge it to some extent. And we're going to try to wrestle with how does Paul articulate the bridging of that gap, namely a chasm that cannot be naturally overcome, one that has the glory of God on one side and the cross of Christ on the other. That right there is, is hard enough to grasp, isn't it? How do you go from the infinite, perfect, eternal glory of God to the Son of God crucified? I think we've become very comfortable with that. But I don't think we have any idea how impossible of a gap that is. A gap, a chasm that's only bridged when divinity is united with humanity. That's the only thing that will bridge that impossible gap. When the Son of God, who is in the form of God, also takes the form of a slave, maintaining absolute equality with God and yet does not regard it a thing to be grasped, but humbles himself by way of entering into his creation and becoming a man who will yield his perfectly obedient life and person as the one, the only, and the absolute necessary sacrifice for sin. And when we see this, we're seeing that this is a matter of God appeasing God and man paying what man cannot naturally pay, and yet man did pay with his natural body, and God was appeased. How does that work? Well, that's, that's a mixture of revelation and mystery overlapping with one another, and some of them we'll understand, and some of them we won't, but further mystery is revealed because we don't go from glory just to cross, but we're also going from cross to glory. Again, a matter only possible by the incarnate Son of God bridging the impossible gap from, glo- from glory glory to cross, and back to glory. And so Paul says, let's lean in on that, and that's going to help us understand how you ought to think. Again, all matters that Paul chose to press us to as we consider what we might more fully appreciate this otherwise straightforward and clear command, think like Christ. To think like Christ, Paul framed it with revelation and mystery and wonder all mixed in there together. Glory cross to glory. Think like Christ. Think with a humble, others-oriented disposition, and in this, secure the unity that brings not only Paul joy. Remember, that's how it started off with this command. Fulfill my joy, but it also produces Christ joy, as it is the unity of his church, his body, his bride, that he humbly gave himself to redeem. Now, having this larger view of the commands in view, let's return to where we left off this last week. Specifically with, but emptied himself. You know, for us, three words that with a, a view to the whole of the passage occupied our, our full attention last week, and perhaps you're not particularly surprised, maybe you're thinking, boy, we've reduced from passages to a few verses to, to verse to, to, to three words. We did engage the passage as a whole, but those three words are, are, are weighty and challenging and they have filled volumes of discourse and debate among those who are striving to better understand and articulate the glorious mysteries of the incarnation of Christ. It's a weighty, challenging subject matter, and yet it's going to be a key element to our understanding how Christ thought that we might also think in a like manner. And so we want to wrestle through all these matters well, but we must also again remind ourselves that we can only go so far in such matters before, again, revelation gives way to mystery. Now, amongst ourselves and certainly among our, our larger sphere friends. Again, there are, there are varying degrees of agreement. And mindful of this, I provided my, my own five conclusions. This helped me get my hands around it just a little bit, but I, my hands, I can't get my hands around it. It just helps a little bit, and I hope it helps you as we, we again wrestle to think through this. And as I would hope, you, hope to encourage you to consider these matters as we think about how and what way did Christ empty himself? And so I propose the following five items here. First, Christ emptying was one of gain. That sounds really strange. We don't think of empty as gain, but what's the nature of how he emptied himself? Empty is modified by two participles here, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. So Christ emptying was one of gain. Second, Christ emptying himself in no way changed his being in the form of God or the equality that accompanies such a fact. He neither forfeited nor lost any divine attribute. So he is fully God, was, is and always will be. Nothing was lost in that process, nothing will be lost. Third, Christ's glory was in some manner concealed. It was not expressed as it was or would be, and yet it was present in his revealing the Father more, pers- more pers- and more personally displayed, but for a moment on the mountain. Fourth, Christ wholly submitted his will to that of the Father. We worked through that for a good while last week in terms of the nature of the submission of the Son. And then fifth, Christ operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, something we gave, a, I think, a healthy measure of attention to last week as well. So five items. I don't expect everybody to fully prescribe, but I do want to advance the conversation, and that's the best that I can wrestle through and articulate it for us. And it's going to be how we're going to operate moving forward in terms of pressing ourselves to think, how did Christ think that we might think in a like manner? And then with these conclusions in view, I aim to remind you that wherever you land, they all direct us back to the bridging of the glories of God with the humility of the Son of Man. And so you have to get from glory to cross to glory. And those bridges, they don't naturally happen. They require supernatural work. They require something more than what we can offer intellectually or otherwise. And so they're pressing us also to something. And what are they pressing us to? and others-oriented humility that we've all been called to mimic. So why did Paul give that to us? Why did he give us hard and weighty things? Because he wants to, sh- to, to transform, to press us to think a certain way, namely like Christ. So regardless of however much we agree or differ on some of these matters, we can all affirm that this is our aim. This is why Paul provided this most magnificent text that we're going to wrestle to until we've exhausted ourselves and then we're going to find rest in the magnificent nature of God's mysteries. Again, among them being that the glorious God that we so richly celebrate chose to make himself known in this way. In return, what do we do when we finally get to that point? Well, we respond in worship. To include the worship that's expressed with the renewing of our minds, again, with a humble, others-oriented unity in the Lord. That's where we're getting to. That's why he wrote these very challenging things. Now, Having this foundation of the matter of Christ emptying himself, we're going to give our attention to the two means or manners by which Christ emptied himself. Christ emptied himself by taking, and Christ emptied himself by being made. That's the nature of how he emptied himself, by taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. So taking the form of a slave. So two weeks ago, I think it was two, maybe three weeks ago, when walking through the passage's other use of form or morphe, we concluded that uh, this term is communicating the possession of an objective reality or state of being, and that it is used to express the essential character or, or nature of something. And so now we have that term once more. So he was, in the, was and is, he's existing in the form of God, now he's taking on the form of a slave. Therefore, when Paul stated that Christ exists in the form of God, he was expressing that Christ possesses the essential character or nature of God and is therefore holy God and, as such, equal to God. Now, in this portion of the text, when speaking to Christ's humility, he provides us the most profound contrast that Christ took the form of a slave. And this is not in any way whatsoever to infer that Christ exchanged one form for the other, but rather that he took on a second form. Christ, who was, is, and always will be God, also took on the form of a slave, a humbled expression of humanity, an element of his emptying himself. Now, slave has a a range of expressions among God's people and has perhaps the paradoxical capacity to be used in both an honorary and humbling identity. So we come to Acts chapter 4, verse 29. We, we hear the petition by the early church believers. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your words with all confidence. So plainly, the early church believers assume the identity of being slaves. But how are they using the term? Uh, that may well be open to some consideration as it could have been a, a natural carryover of the Old Testament sentiment of being a servant of Yahweh, which is probably how Mary and Simeon incorporated it into their own identity and their own prayers. So we see in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 48, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble state of his slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. And then Luke 29 to 31, Simeon uh, embracing the infant Jesus, Now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And as you may well remember, being a servant of Yahweh was an honorable identity. Moses was clearly esteemed in this manner, and Joshua then went on to assume a like identity. So we see in Joshua 1.7, Only be strong and very courageous to be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn aside from it to the right or the left so that you may be prosperous wherever you go. And then we advance forward to the end of Joshua, speaking of his life. Now it happened that after these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died being 110 years old. So slave or servant has a a range of expressions to it, but the context here in Philippians 2 is plainly not of the nobler nature but rather is the common and lowly form of slavery. It is the antithesis to one who rules, to one being Lord, which again reminds us of the innumerable paradoxes bound up in the Incarnation as Christ was both Lord and slave simultaneously. But again, being in the form of a slave was an accurate and true articulation of Christ's pre-resurrection incarnation, an excellent description of his identity and faithful service. And it fleshes out what we've affirmed regardless of elements of his emptying himself, namely that his glory was in some measure, in some manner, concealed, that he had wholly submitted his own will to that of the Father, and then he operated in the power of the Holy Spirit. But why? Because a slave is naturally in a subordinate role. A slave naturally takes orders and commands. We see this with the the plain context of things such as Matthew chapter 8, verse 9. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. We get that. That, It's a soldier obeying the orders of a superior officer. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. There's a clear subordinate role there. And again, though, here's the irony of the paradox. This soldier's affirming the humbled servant Jesus, the humble servant, Jesus, he's affirming his lordship. He's saying, in your humility, and you're walking amongst us, and you're submitting to the will of the Father, and bringing yourself under the, the empowerment of the Spirit of God, you are also Lord, and you can just say it, and it happens. And so there's a bit of a paradox there, which Jesus, in turn, confirms and acts upon, even while in the form of a slave. And then we go into Luke chapter 17, uh, verses 7-10, to 10, but which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. But you will not say to him, pre- but will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and, cloth- and and clothing yourself properly. Serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you may eat and drink. Is he grateful to the slave because he did the thing which you were commanded? In this way, you also, when you do all the things which you were commanded of you, or which are commanded of you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We've only done that which we ought to have done. So again, it's not Jesus being um, demeaning to anyone or any um, socioeconomic people group or anybody that found themselves in whatever providential circumstances. It's just a plain fact that while slaves were common in the larger culture and as such a consistent character in various parables, they were subordinate class. Therefore, doing one's work was not special. It wasn't like, congratulations. Well, you, you did what you were supposed to do. It was just expected. And yet such was the nature of what Jesus took on for himself, and it was one that proved to be the model of godly leadership, as we see expressed a number of times, to include Matthew 2025 20, to 28. But Jesus called them to himself and said, "'You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercised authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served,' but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So again, Jesus modeled and taught that biblical authority is expressed in service to others. And again, by his own testimony and the plain observations of the gospel accounts, we clearly see that indeed the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And as we more fully worked through such matters last week, we also noted his service was one of submission to the Father. And I believe that's what Paul is communicating here. But he's also expressing something more, as he plainly has a view to the humility of the Incarnation in view too. Paul's expressing, I would argue, he's pressing us to view Christ's humility in view of his humanity. So again, this is more than identity of humility. It's, or it's also an identity of humanity. As taking on the form of a slave, implicitly, I would argue, includes taking on the form of man. And in view of this text development, I believe it should be viewed as a parallel to Christ's equality with God flowing from his existing in the form of God. Therefore, his humanity is an outworking or expression of his taking on the form of a slave. Now, Here, someone may say, well, that's an interesting argument, but they might reasonably challenge this conclusion as Jesus has not persisted or remained in the form of a slave as he's now the exalted Lord. Death and resurrection having transitioned his humanity, his human identity from humility to exaltation. And that's true, but it's also true that he was also always been Lord, a Lord who emptied himself and as such became a slave. But again, it may still be pressed. Well, is Jesus' humanity bound up in his identity as a slave? the answer would be no. No, because taking the form of a slave was an expression of Jesus' humbled humanity, but being a slave was not a necessary identifying quality of his humanity or his continued incarnate state. And the reason that slavery could express the humanity of Christ, who is no longer in such a humble and lowly condition, and yet still the incarnate Son of God, is the resurrection. So again, the humility of being found in the form of a slave implicitly is communicating he took on the form of man. But that does not necessarily mean that, oh, to be the incarnate son, he has to remain in the form of a slave because something transitioned, something changed the nature of his human condition. The incarnate son was resurrected. Death and resurrection changed everything. We see this in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, concerning his son who was born of the seed of David, his natural birth, according to the flesh, who is designated as the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we see that resurrection transformed the humble condition of the incarnate son of God, who is still the incarnate son of God, but no longer in the form of a slave, now the exalted Lord. So the resurrection transformed Christ's humanity from humility to exaltation. And so we can affirm here that taking the form of a slave was an act of profound humility and an expression of Christ's incarnation. An element of his emptying himself in subordinate service to the Father for our redemption and to serve as a model of our own service to both the Lord and one another. Now, I know that was a lot to take in. Maybe too much to just do verbally, maybe I should have handed you notes, done 10 more slides, but I hope that the minimal of this, I hope that the association between taking the form of a slave and Christ's humanity is perhaps a little bit more clearly linked for you. That when he speaks of taking the form of a slave, he is, he's speaking of he who is in the form of God, the preexistent glorious God. We didn't have to qualify that. We understood that when he took on the form, when he exists in the form of God, we understood that that carries with it so many things. And among the things that carries with it is the fact that he is, equal to God, something that Paul explicitly states. And so by parallel, I would argue, taking the form of a slave, that lowly condition that we know was expressed in his humanity, it's implicitly part of that, taking the form of a slave. And yet, he's still the incarnate son of God. And how is that so? Well, because of death and resurrection, he's the incarnate, glorious son of God. So again, slave expressing humanity. And while I hope that's clear, Paul does a better job. He makes it a little bit more clear for us. And it's as though he's saying, let me be a little bit more emphatically clear as he modifies emptied with the second participle, with being made, specifically being made in the likeness of men. Now you might think, that doesn't help me any, because that term likeness, likeness, maybe that introduces for you some challenges, um, provoking you to wonder if likeness equals actual existence or experience, as it maybe likeness likeness, are we using a simile now? Uh, is it a point of comparison without full or true equivalency? So he was in the likeness of men, so then maybe that even makes it more challenging? No, not necessarily. And there's a reasonable, but it is reasonable to consider that. It's a reasonable place to consider and to wrestle with that. However, we must tread carefully here, noting that the definition of a simile by Merriam-Webster is a figure of speech comparing two unlike things two unlike things, that is often introduced by like or as. In the example they give, cheeks like roses. It doesn't mean you have roses for cheeks. They have similar qualities, but they're unlike one another. And therein lies the perspective point of tension, or even problem, the comparison of two unlike things, which is not what Paul is getting at. Because we know from the plain testimony of the Scriptures, including what we've been working through in our passage regarding the two forms, Christ exists in the form of God, and Christ took the form of a slave, We therefore do not have a comparison of two unlike things, divinity and humanity. Naturally would be unlike, but they've been, what, united. United in Christ, who does not simply appear to be like a man, as he indeed is a man. So perhaps if Paul had not established that Christ took on the form or core attributes, features, and essence of a slave, which implicitly communicates his taking on humanity, a matter made explicitly clear in the larger testimony of his role as a slave or servant, while also remaining Lord throughout his public ministry, maybe then we could more dutifully wrestle with the comparison of two unlike things, as we would not have this point of uh, this bridge of divinity and humanity. But we do, we do. We have humanity united to divinity. So that's been spoken to as more firmly secured and affirmed here as well. So this is a likeness that affirms. Christ's full humanity, and with this humility, which informs his thinking and by command our thinking as well. And so, to help us express this by way of noting the importance of being made, which is a critical part of being made in the likeness, being made in the likeness of men. Robert Grammacki, I apologize to his family. I'm sure it's pronounced differently. Wrote the following: "Quote the verb made." Again, looks at the event of the incarnation, specifically at the conception, not the birth. The conception was supernatural, but the fetal development, the birth, and the physical, psychical growth were all normal human experiences. John used the same verb verb in his declaration, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Therefore, in emptying himself, Jesus took the form of a slave and as such was made in the likeness of men. Again, Jesus took the form of a slave, expressing the Son of God willfully humbled himself by becoming a man, truly being God while also truly becoming a man, from conception through full and natural maturity as a man in his thirties who worked, spoke, and lived as you and I, and such is what likeness of men is expressing. It would have us understand that Jesus knew the same or the natural experiences of men as he was indeed himself a man, and as such was found in the appearance as a man." Even so, there's still both mystery and tension here, which is why I respect what Kent Homer was getting at when he stated, quote, it, it stresses similarity but leaves room for differences. Now, I think that was helpful, but not really helpful, because I found his wording less than suitable for my conviction, so let's change it just for a little bit here, and exchange uh, s- uh, say, uh, sameness for his use of similarity. And then I think we could affirm it a little bit more clearly here, So, that being said, the refined version of his statement, it stresses sameness, but leaves room for differences. You might think, well, that's a way to get out of things, isn't it? Same, but different. Well, it's part of the paradox here. He was in the likeness of men in that he was fully man, and yet there were distinctions. And perhaps that sounds, again, like we're wiggling around things and just throwing under the paradox. Well, it's the tension the scriptures leave us with, and I'm okay with that. Which is why I also appreciated the careful thoughtfulness of Gordon Fee's conclusions here, as he recognizes that likeness includes a measure of intentional ambiguity, so as to remind us that while Jesus was holy God, he was also a holy man, and in this way was like us, even while also being distinct from us, too. Or in his own words, he states, quote, The word likeness has been the troubling word in this phrase, especially in light of this Even more difficult word, appearance, in the first phrase of the next sentence. But again, the difficulty stems more from philosophical theology than from Paul. The word is used primarily because of Paul's belief, in common with the rest of the early church, that in becoming human, Christ did not thereby cease to be divine. This word allows for the ambiguity, emphasizing that he is similar to our humanity in some respects and dissimilar in others. The similarity lies with his full humanity. In his incarnation, he was like in the sense of the same as. Okay, but wherein lies the distinction then? Where's the distinction as humanity? Because we need to be very careful. He was like us in all ways, and tempted, and, and, and walked, and struggled, and slept, and, and ate, and had, so in what way was he distinct? We need to be very careful here. Well, I think we have some help from Paul in another passage in the book of Romans, where he uses the same term for likeness, Romans Chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So, Jesus was in the likeness of sinful flesh in that he was like it and yet distinct from it too, in that he was indeed a fleshly or natural man in this regard, but without sin. And being in the flesh, as a natural man, he condemned sin in the flesh, an act that required the union of God with sinless humanity. And this relationship of being in the flesh and yet distinct from the fleshly experience of others is what helps us appreciate this likeness being elevated beyond a simile. It was not simply as if Jesus were in the flesh. Indeed, he was in the flesh and is in the flesh as he was and is holy man. Otherwise, the whole of this context in Romans 8 falls apart as well as it also requires that Jesus be in the flesh and yet distinct in the nature of his experience as it was without sin. So once more, just for good measure, Jesus was in the likeness of man because he possessed all the qualities and characters of a man. He was a man and he is a man, albeit he is God and man. And in considering these matters, it was most appropriate that on Wednesday, I, I just, does anybody have a song? And I naturally looked to Isaiah. He's our song guy on Wednesdays, or kind of by default. And he said, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And he didn't just start singing. He just pitched the song. And I found it rather efficiently. It was actually, I probably should have taken longer because it was artificially quick. But we were able to sing it together. And some of you may have seen it uh, when you were um, remotely with us. But we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And it was fitting for this text and a review of this text because Christ emptying himself by taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men had defined starting point when divinity was knit to humanity. Luke chapter 1, we're very familiar with this, especially in this upcoming season of the year, 134 to 35. But Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Or we can skip down to Luke chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. Now it happened while they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the guest room. Or we could skip down to John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or Galatians 4, chapter 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And the incarnate Son grew and matured in ways that made it plain that he was, that he both was and yet was not an ordinary boy. We could argue, well, this was... Uh, common Jewish experiences, first century Judaism and and the experiences that many other would have had, but clearly there was a distinction to the expression of his experience. And the incarnate son grew and matured, and we see in Luke also chapter 2, verses 42 to 52, and when he became 12 years old, they went up there according to the custom of the feast, and as they were returning after finishing the days of the feast, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know but supposing him to be in the caravan, they went a day's journey, and they began searching for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. And it happened that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard were astonished at his understanding and his answers. I would just pause there and say, like but different. When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you are searching for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Again, like but different. Again, any of them could have said that, but I think there's a distinction there that Luke's drawing out. But they did not understand the statement which he had spoken to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother was treasuring all these things in her heart. And Jesus was advancing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. And so we have Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, a lowly, subordinate role, by being made in the likeness of men, like and yet distinct, because he was fully God while also being fully man. And Paul's next statement therefore proves to be a good natural transition as developing emphasis on Christ's humanity. So we saw early in our passage in 2, 5 through 8, the emphasis was on divinity. Now it's more and more of an emphasis on humanity, merged with divinity, and this is going to continue to advance that emphasis on the humanity, giving one final expression of it here as he directs our attention to the bridging of the gap from glory to cross. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So again, being found in appearance as a man. Now that really does sound like a superficial observation, does it not? And by superficial, I'm not saying uh, that we're tossing it out. Superficial, the, that which is going to be seen, plainly seen, obvious. Not necessarily something that uh, has greater depth to it. And, and that he, he had the appearance of man, really just surface level that it just looked like it maybe like another christophany no much much more we've already established that now he's just drilling down on it as it were and but to be direct though i think the superficial observation is part of what he's getting at he's getting at the appearance of it he's communicating that christ's appearance was that of just a normal man and so Paul goes on to express how Christ was naturally perceived, just as a man, a plain, ordinary man. That's the perception side. The kind of man that you don't necessarily have to uniquely regard, or you know, the kind of man that you can direct your malice motives toward, or even the kind of normal man that you can, under false pretense, crucify. Because he appeared to be a man, just a natural man. Christ genuinely looked the part, Why? Because he had taken on the part. He was fully man, and for many this was the extent of what they saw of him. And here we could just pause and just talk about an act of humility. Taking on the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, that was humbling. But to be found in appearance not as the king of glory who took on humanity, but simply just as a man, just a plain, ordinary man, that's incredibly humbling. And we see the working out of this reality time and again throughout the Gospels, this being found in his appearance as a man. Matthew 8:23 to 27, and when he had gotten to the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was sleeping. And they came to him and got him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you so cowardly, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And they said, oh, of course you did, because you're the creator. And the men marveled. Wow, wow, this is the, the great and glorious God who's taken on flesh and walked among men. No, the men marveled and said, what kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Matthew 13:54 to 57 and he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so they were astonished and said where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers is not this the carpenter's son is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters are they not all with us where did the where then did this man get these things where And they were taking offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and his own household. You know, he grew up down the road from us. You know, he's Joseph's boy. And that was the extent of the valuation by some. Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit, said they were, that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your mat and go home. It just looked like some guy that was saying things that were outlandish. they weren't. John chapter 4, verses 7 to 14, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How do you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, being a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's not what normal men offer, by the way. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw from, draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this, that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Yeah. Yeah. Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst ever but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. John 6, 41 to 42, therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? As the extent of the, the perception, because that was true, right? He didn't just come with a, he wasn't some protection program where he came with a backstory. Okay, you're, you're Jesus, your mom was Mary, your brother. That was his real experience, and they, that's all they could see. How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? John eight fifty six to 59, Your father Abraham, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They put the dots together there, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And so with Jesus being found in appearance as a man, we have the final strand of a three-part braid, as it were, one well-articulated by Marvin Vincent, who explained, the form of a servant is concerned with the fact that the manifestation of a servant corresponded with the real fact that Christ came as the servant of mankind. And the phrase, in the likeness of men, the thought is still linked with that of his essential nature, which rendered possible a likeness to men, but not an absolute identity with men, And being found in fashion as a man, the thought is confined to the outward guise as it appealed to the sense of mankind. I know we have to be so careful with language. I don't think anybody's abandoning full humanity. We're just marrying full humanity with full divinity, and our words are not going to, they're going to come up short, but you can understand the pictures that are developed here, and not just pictures, they are expressions of reality. A slave, man, and just appeared to be a common man. And that was a humbling act, every bit of that. Emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Emptying himself, taking on the, uh, being made in the likeness of men. Emptying himself by appearing as a man. And such matters were humbling. To take on humanity was humbling. To be found in appearance not as the king of glory who took on humanity, but being viewed simply as a man was truly humbling. And yet this was but the foundation for the greatest expression of humility that was yet to come as Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as you well know, crucifixion was a torturous mean of death, uh, designed with maximum humiliation and pain in view. And I know people have rightfully um, given substantial attention to the, the physical pain associated with crucifixion, but you don't need to dismiss the, the, the absolute humiliation as well. It was a public display of horror and caution to others, as its victims were left with few to no clothes as they suffocated to death while suspended in the air in full public display. That's pain, uh, physical pain, psychological pain. It's it's an absolute undoing, a shaming. It was not a death fit for Roman citizens, as we've already mentioned. The Philippian readers, they wouldn't have been crucified. Nobody in the Philippian church would have been crucified unless there was extraordinary circumstances to go beyond the bounds of common experiences because they were Roman citizens, and Roman citizens weren't crucified. It was beneath them. This was not for Roman citizens. It wasn't fit for them. It was exclusively or almost exclusively reserved for rebels and slaves. And so we hear the, the crowd, as it were, they knew what they were saying. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Christ they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil did he do? But they were crying out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. The Roman statesman, lawyer, orator, and philosopher, Cicero, famously stated, far be the very name of a cross, not only from the body, but even from the thought, the eyes, the ears of Roman citizens. It was a despised death, a shameful death, a horrific death. Shameful and despised by the Romans, and for the Jews, such a death was cursed. A matter that Paul speaks to in writing the Galatians, in chapter three, verse thirteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who is hung, who, who excuse me, who hangs on a tree." So plainly, the pain was unimaginable and the shame unbearable, but the worst of this experience would have been unique to Christ and Christ alone. As the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what may have appeared to have been the great paradox, God becoming man, that, that's, you don't get a bigger paradox than that, do you? Well, You do. Let's advance that. That paradox plainly provided the means of an even greater paradox, that the most perfect expression of justice being satisfied was by way of the most profane expression of injustice being carried out. Simultaneously, by means of the incarnate Son of God, because this was the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. Luke chapter twenty two verses sixty three through twenty three forty nine. I only have the reference up for you. I'm just going to read the account. Um, I know we could be more concise, but I think it's helpful to embrace and appreciate the humility, the humbling of the Son. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him while they beat him. And is it just? Hold, we can pause here. You remember who the the antecedent is here, right? This is Jesus. He's been falsely incarcerated or, mo- or arrested, as it were. I promise if any one of you were falsely incarcerated, arrested or otherwise, it would be, I'm, you would be pitching a fit. You would be a mess. You would be saying things and you would be ashamed of yourself because you'd be so angry. It's not right. They were holding Jesus in custody, mocking him. I don't think you'd take well to, to somebody mocking you mocking him while they beat him, physically beating him. They blindfolded him, were saying, asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hits you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. And as the day came, the Sanhedrin of elders and the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their Sanhedrin, saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You yourself say that I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. They couldn't see past the appearance of a man. Now, given, sin profoundly blinded them. Then their whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. You see what that is? You have to manipulate the system. You can't kill Jesus, so we've got to manipulate the guys that can. Go to the secular authorities. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, You yourself say it. Then Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. Now when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. So he's found his out now, and he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. He sent him to, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem in those days. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he rejoiced greatly. Oh, but there's the Son of God! no. He rejoiced greatly, for he wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. It's sideshow, Jesus, to Herod. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priest and the scribes were standing there, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a bright robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. What a, what a crass friendship that was. How horrible. And Pilate summoned the chief priest and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found in this man no guilt of what you are accusing him, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out altogether, together, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He had been thrown into prison for an insurrection and made, in this, and made in the city and for murder. But again, Pilate addressed them wanting to release Jesus. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify! Crucify him! And he said to them a third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found no guilt worthy of death, therefore I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent, with loud voices, asking that he be crucified. And their voices were prevailing. And Pilate pronounced sentence, that their demands be granted. And he released the man they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. And when they led him away, they took hold of a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large multitude of the people of the women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop crying for me, but cry for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves, and the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were scoffing at him. And so you've already heard false incarceration, abuse, bogus trials, physical abuse, slandering, now crucifixion. And then as they passed by, while well, he's suspended up in the air, suffocating to death, petitioning for their forgiveness, the rulers walked by scoffing at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if, the, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals hanging there was blaspheming him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, saying, do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for what we have done. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land into the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two. And Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was righteous. And all the crowds who came together for the spectacle, when they observed what had happened, were returning, beating their chest. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, watching these things. And so Paul now echoes once more, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we've, we've wrestled with things that, that are clear but hard to apply, and now we've wrestled with things that are clear until they're drifting into the glories of God's great mysteries. But all the while, this much has remained clear. We have been given two commands, two commands regarding how we ought to think. And in this, we were pressed not just to think in a certain way, but to think like Christ, And we've done our best to examine such matters together over the last few weeks. But I think a most natural conclusion here will be to watch, to listen, and heed the words of Christ one last time as the incarnate God serves his friends only hours before the events of what we just read together from Luke's gospel. And then, after he served them, what did he do? He says, you, you go and do the same. You think like I thought. And when you think like, he, like I thought, you'll act like I acted. John chapter 13, verses 3 to 17. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around himself. Then he poured water into the wash, ben, wash basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he had tied around himself. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered to him, or said to him, What am I what I'm doing, you do not realize now, but you will understand afterwards. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet, ever. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? That's That's a good question. He's on the precipice of what we just read. He's walked, led, taught, and now intimately humbly serve them. So he asks, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So Jesus modeled a humble, others-oriented obedience, the kind of thinking that produces a unity of mind in the Lord. And with this, the command is quite plain, quite clear. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. All right, let's pray. Lord, we are grateful in ways that we don't necessarily know how to articulate properly or, or, or as we ought to. When we consider the nature of what you've been pleased to reveal to us, you've made things clear in such a way that we can hear and respond in faith and, and believing, be transformed, be redeemed and, and be declared your children, adopted sons and daughters of God, co-heirs with Christ, another of the perplexing mysteries of, of your glorious gospel. But part of what you've made clear is that he who is in the form or he who exists in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And that emptying himself was magnificent and terrible all at the same time. Taking the form of a slave, we have hard enough time picking up after ourselves, much less bringing ourselves under the authority and care of another and then taking the, or having our, uh, becoming in the appearance as a man, being made in the likeness of man. Taking on full humanity, which again was implicit in the, the taking in the form of a slave the Creator stepping into creation, walking among us, being fully God, yet fully man. These things are beyond our grasp. And yet we saw the nature of your experience, just the son of Joseph. Who's this man that talks this way? And you continually humbled yourself and submitted yourself to the will of the Father and the empowerment of the Spirit. And in this, you not only redeemed us, You exemplified for us what we ought to do now, how we ought to think. And so, Lord, would you be pleased to help us? We're going to wrestle with the particulars, and that's okay. Just give us the grace to wrestle well and to be charitable and stay within the boundaries of of integrity, of clear doctrine. Lord, we want to wrestle well because we want to understand the nature of how Christ thought so that we can put that to action. And so, Lord, would you be pleased to help us? So many things have been clear, but hard to put to action. This is hard to understand and hard to put to action. So we ask that you be pleased to be our help. And we thank you, Lord, for the humbling of the Son of Man. And we thank you that death and resurrection transformed the humbled Son of Man to the glorious Son of Man. And we long for that return. We long for that day in which you expressed that, the, uh, that it, it provoked cries of blasphemy but it wasn't blasphemy, it was true. From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the Father's right hand and coming in power. And we thank you that that's the the state of things now, and we long for that day in which you return, gloriously return. Call us to yourself, establish your kingdom, and fully execute your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.